children of all ages, Logic Code Radio presents the greatest podcast in the world, the Marketech Samuel Plan, the Devil's Advocate Shinobi, the Lunatic King Maverick, and Single Syllable Mother, the right side of the pond. And of course, if you're not down with that, we got two words for you! Sublords Payne, welcome to the right side of the pond. Welcome to the new gen side of the pond, indeed. Uh, we are very excited to bring you another little uh, mini-series, uh, looking back at some pay-per-views. We are, in particular, this time, going to have a look at a series of, of pay-per-views from 1995, reappraising 1995. Um, and we're very excited because both Plan and I are big advocates of the new generation, as I'm sure anyone that's ever listened to the show uh, may have noticed. And we've decided to indulge ourselves. And it's a good time to indulge ourselves uh, for a, a lot of reasons, I think. Uh, most of all, because it will be good to, uh, to to get some some positive discussion about, about pro wrestling in there. But also because genuinely, just as we did with the invasion, you know, uh, there's a lot of nonsense that gets written and spoken about the new generation and 1995 in particular. So it's going to be uh, a cool series. So we thought we'd do a little prologue to kick us off um, and really just kind of talk a little bit about about our fondness for the new generation and also for why why pick January 95 as our starting point. So we are just going to kind of... Uh, you know, swap some thoughts back and forth for the next 40, 45 minutes or so. And then next week, we're going to get you kicked off with the first pay-per-view, which is going to be Royal Rumble 1995. So for those of you uh, who want to watch along with us, um, you know, you can listen to this and then load up the network and off you go. So um, the the new generation plan, um, you know, obviously you're currently writing and researching uh, a book on the subject. Um, as I'm sure, uh, you know, you'll be you'll be telling people on a weekly basis. Pretty soon. Uh, so, so like what what is it? I mean, because obviously you are a, a fair bit younger than me uh, and maybe wasn't watching contemporaneously with the era as it was going on. So what is it that, that drew it drew you to it? Something quite specific, actually, initially, I my first wrestling videotape uh, that I ever bought, I remember very distinctly. Uh, being uh, downstairs in in the local Woolworths in my local town centre. Woolworths, a a sort of a department store that's long since closed down in this country. Um, Sad times that it closed down, by the way. Uh, And uh, I I remember very much, very clearly even, looking at all of the, I don't know how old I would have been, I must have been maybe, let me think here, maybe nine or ten, and looking at the... The, the wire racking with all the, the WWF videos on mine, because it was all the In Your House VHSs. So, like, uh, if you've ever seen sort of the posters of, of In Your House pay-per-views, they were always sort of very individual and, and different. And I remember seeing, I can still remember seeing the Mind Games video with the front cover with Mankind on it, or it might have been Buried Alive, actually, thinking about it, because it had The Undertaker on as well. And it was Final Four, which, of course, is is a, a pay-per-view you and I have, uh, and a match you and I have talked at great length about, respectively, in our time at LOP, is big, big fans of, big lovers of it. And that was the first videotape that I managed to convince my mum and dad to bite me. Uh, went home, watched it, and, and 
I was already a wrestling fan at this point. I should say that it wasn't the the show that got me into wrestling. In fact, I was probably watching every week at this point. I don't think it was too long after the the. It must not have been very long after 1997 that that they bought it for me, um, and I just loved it. I loved the entire show. I loved particularly the main event. Watched the hell out of that videotape like you wouldn't believe. Uh, and then uh, Bret Hart had been my favorite wrestler as well, but I kind of. Uh, only knew that from a distance for a long time. I came to his, the majority of his career's material after the fact, um, because we didn't, we didn't have WWF in the house when I was a kid, um, until around 98, 99 time, uh, which was obviously after Brett had left for WCW. Um, but, uh, he was, he was my favorite wrestler. I liked, loved his matches, loved final four. And then over time, you know, as you, as you, as you mature as a wrestling fan, particularly if you join a site like LOP, particularly if you start podcasting about it or writing about it and you spend as much time watching back catalog as I have done over the last and yourself as well, but certainly that I have done since 2008 when I first joined LOP, um, you know, and exploring, uh, I guess in my case, more specifically the history of WWE, um, over time, gradually, I started to think, actually, what people say about the mid-1990s isn't that accurate from what I can see. And then I watched more of it, and it just continued to develop over a very long time until sort of in the last four or five years, um, you know, uh, I, I, I just suddenly thought, well, not suddenly, but gradually eventually came to the conclusion that, the new gen actually has a huge upside to it. It's nothing like the pervading folklore uh, that that you know people hold about it. Uh, the the criticisms leveled at it are are considerably misrepresentative. I think very unfair. Uh, and you know I think there's a real there's a real need to redress that because it has had an impact on wrestling. And I'm not going to immediately dive back into cynical discussion about everything that I hate within the first 10 minutes of the show. Um, but I think a small part of that, at the very least, is the fact that people, that the new gen, that entire period between 93 and 97, um, has basically just been completely erased from WWE's history. You don't ever hear them talk about it. The best that they do talk about it is with a, a passing mention to Bret Hart. But when that happens, it's usually one of a you know, five or six matches, most of which happened in 92 or before or 97. Um, or of course, uh, blowing smoke up the arse, Shawn Michaels. Um, but even that focuses more on his second career than it second career than it does his first one. So I think there's a, there's a real need to bring to the, the wider wrestling population, a, a realization that new gen, everything people want or claim to want from a product new gen provided in the mid 1990s. And, and that, it's the, I mean, you know, I'm a performance art guy. I love character. I love narrative. No era in WWE's history, and I mean this, you know, quite seriously, not one era in WWE's history has done it better than New Gen did it. Uh, uh, you would think if you were to watch Bret Hart's arc from 92 to 97 or Owens from 92 to 97 or anybody's, you would think that it was all planned ahead. It's that tightly written. Um, and I think as a result, it's just a, a towering monument to WWE at its best. I think the most important thing that people need to understand is that we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to have i'm not gonna say the products of now because that's that's probably not a compliment but we wouldn't be able <laughs> to have had the products of the last um 25 years if you know um you know if the new gen hadn't 
existed mm. and a lot of what people take for granted technical wrestlers you know all-rounders that can do everything high flyers and smaller guys with world championships um you know uh charismatic monsters that go up and down the card um you know authority figures like all of that really came about because of the new generation and a lot more as well you know and that's that's really just even just the surface of it and i think you know for me i was watching like you know at the time uh patchily i you know to be fair because again my parents didn't have uh didn't have satellites so it was you know it was always reliant on on friends and tapes and you know and as people started to kind of grow out of inverted commas wrestling which happened a lot of the time uh or, you know there was no there's no question to be fair that, that the popularity of the company waned in this country uh quite a lot with my sort of generation of fans um but you know i was able to keep in touch via you know um vhs's with pocket money and my local library weirdly used to buy in the vhs's of in your house that you could go and rent out mm. <laughs> which i used to do but i i think the the thing that i really liked at the era as it was happening was obviously that the guys that i i had held on to as my favorites at the end of the rock and wrestling era were the people who were being pushed as the new stars and obviously i wouldn't have known the word push at the time but they were the people that were uh were now the champions and stuff so you know Shawn michaels is intercontinental intercontinental champion you know razor ramon as intercontinental champion bret hart as world champion um these are the guys that that i you know that i loved watching mr perfect uh, you know in a prominent position up until you know the end of 93 or so so it, it's like these people were all the people that i i loved watching in the era when i got into wrestling and now these were the main guys and all the people that i didn't like people like hogan uh were gone <laughs> and actually i kind of you know it was it was great and i think people don't really realize the impact of of putting a world title for for vince on someone like bret hart was absolutely like we're still feeling the resonance of that to this day there's no Entirely. way a seth rollins ever has that belt if bret hart didn't there's no way that um there's you always know, Shawn Michaels does. That a Kurt Angle does either, right? Or, um, you know, try to think of somebody in between that time. There's no way that Eddie Guerrero does or a Chris Benoit does or, you know, an Edge does even. These people wouldn't have, have, have got where they got. And, yeah, like Bret Hart wasn't actually a small guy, was he? He's like, you know, over six foot tall, 220, 230 pounds. But it it was huge at the time because I don't think they'd, they'd had many world champions that weren't, you know, post backland anyway, that weren't three hundred pounds. So it's it's that well, kind of like massive sea change in the way they did things. And as you say, with the advent of Monday Night Raw, with the advent of consistent storytelling, week to week stuff, um, which was easier to follow because it wasn't on a million different syndicated TV <laughs> programs. Um, it, it they just and of course with the advent of In Your House, um, they started to put together a product which although it it might not have moved numbers in the beginning. By the time they got to that turning point in 1997, 
they were ready to launch off and you know win their kind of uh win their war with wcw and although people are always like you know the new generation oh they were losing the ratings war every week if you listen to people like bruce pritchard reminisce on it on those podcasts that he does both on the network and you know the downloadable ones from from audio form he's always saying that you know what they were doing was trying to put themselves in a position where they've recovered to the point where they could just take the fight to wcw and that's exactly what they did and i think the groundwork the new generation laid the benefits were reaped by the attitude era but people don't want to hear that they want to hear that the attitude era was this dramatic thing that came from nowhere but it, it wasn't it was built up to over a, a gradual period of time and you know obviously brett's transformation is the kind of metaphorical you know allegory for the the company's path really that that this was a slow gradual character change that suddenly a, a switch flipped on and um and that's probably the reality of it well 1995 i mean it's a good reason behind why we should do 1995 because that was uh, the year that that gradual character change in Brett started after he loses the title to, to Backlund because of Owen's interference in Survivor Series in 94. You know, it's 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 such a cliche now that you wince when you hear it, when they talk about the new aggressive, you know, insert wrestler here. Uh, and that's exactly as we all see when we come to starting to break things down. If you watch any of the TVs, particularly leading up to, to uh, and I'd, I'd encourage anyone who watches along to watch all of the TVs instantly, but um, is they talk about the new aggressive Bret Hart. Uh, and it translates that you watch his work in 95 compared to his work in 94, and it is more aggressive. And that starts the process of where he would come to in 96, and then latterly 97, and, and how you, you end up changing things uh, in that initial year for, for attitude as well. Um, I mean, you're talking about a, 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 peri- a period which is really all about the the sanctification of the workhorse. You know, the the esteem with which people now hold the notion that you've got to be able to, quote, unquote, work in the ring. You've got to have a great work rate or whatever, you know, phrase people want to use. Um, that was really placed on the pinnacle like you say, after Hogan moved to WCW, um, and it's not to say that they that those kind of performers weren't in prominent positions before New Gen because they were, but New Gen was the age in which it became uniform, you know, and you had these these um, uh, these kind of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? These divergences off to the side, you know, Diesel's champion for a year or whatever. You've got King Mabel's push, things happen in 95 that get ridiculed, uh, where where it can perhaps skew the the theme of the predominant theme of the era. But you know, as I always say, this that old line about it's all cartoon characters is absolute pish. There's there's nothing more misrepresentative or demonstrative of someone's ignorance towards the era than the line about how it was all cartoon characters. Because if you look at this, the stable of performers that were at the very core of New Gen, who were there on the TVs every week, who were, in, who were all over every single pay-per-view card, you're talking about Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, One Two Three Kid, uh, you know, The Undertaker, who at this point was still doing kind of his slower zombification type performance but 95 again is 
is a, a point at which he begins to pick the pace up a little bit. You have British Bulldog in there. You know, you have Jeff Jarrett, of course, is, is in there as well. Uh, and the list goes on. And we'll see this as we go through 1995's pay-per-views that in actual fact, you'd be hard placed outside of something like a Royal Rumble where you have to have 30 guys. You know, you'd be hard placed to find a Mantar. Uh, you know, or, or any of the, or a knuckleball Schwartz who only ever appeared on, on Raw like twice because he was a topical comment on what was happening in the baseball league at the time and not a, a, a sort of a, a character in his own right. And this is the kind of, you know, or the goon. Good luck finding the goon anywhere. You know, this is, this is the one of the, not the only, but one of the most prominent issues with the way people remember New Gen when in actual fact it was a period that placed performers that people adore and, and even turn into cults of personality today simply because they can again quote quote work you know this was the era where that was made sacrosanct this was the era that said if you're that kind of a performer you should be in a top spot you use the word sea change and i think that that's very apt because you're talking about a, a culture in which uh, the 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 predominant fashion in the ring and certainly in the main event scene was previously the kind of wrestling that was, you know, it was mid-card wrestling, it was tag team wrestling, and now it was main event wrestling. It wasn't just hammy routines like Ultimate Warrior or Hulk Hogan. It was genuinely robust wrestling matches of a often prolonged runtime telling dramatically sweeping stories through heightened athleticism. And, you know, I always remember when Brett came back in 2010 and Shawn Michaels cut that promo with him in the ring and he talked about how the Iron Man match uh, uh, rev- uh, redefined everybody, every everything that everyone expected from, you know, a wrestling match. And, and I think that that actually rings true. If you think about, you know, the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12, uh, I can't think of a match that better represents the kind of change that New Gen introduced, which was saying, we're going to put a slow burn, methodical, intelligent, demanding match in the biggest spot uh, of our product of the year uh, between the two preeminent performers from an in-ring perspective. Like That's that's quintessential New Gen, and I think defines the kind of wrestling uh, culture, if nothing else, that we have we have today. And that's what New Gen really is is responsible for in in WWE. It's not to say that it didn't have, you know, the kind of weird, colorful characters or the misfires or or the mistakes. But if you were to if you were to wait up on a on a pair of, a pair of scales, uh, the successes far outweigh the the far far outweigh the failures, frankly. Um, and, and actually, one of the one of one one great example would be, um, you know. Jerry Law and Bret Hart's feud that we'll get to in the middle of this because it happens in the summer of 95, which results in an Isaac Yankum match with Bret Hart at SummerSlam. People are going to look at that and go, Bret Hart versus a dentist, please. But when you watch it in the context of that rivalry, um, it's it's really something because that whole rivalry is, in 95 for Bret is such an important moment. And that's where watching the TVs be- between pay-per-views, if you get a chance, is so important as well because the TV work that Brett and Jerry Lawler do when they revisit their rivalry that year is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, I think the wrestling you know, world as a whole is so victimised by groupthink. And, you totally. know, like, and I, I know we talked about the start, like WWE are complicit in this. But, you know, it's, uh, it's another chicken and egg thing for me. Because it's almost as if I feel like I've heard so many fans say it that WWE just reflects what they think their fans want to hear about it. Yeah, sure. Um, in a lot of ways, and and you know even people that should know better 
that were watching at the time will sometimes you know trot out these lines and stuff and and i think there's also a kind of false a kind of like false um equivalency between financial returns and quality of product now if you look at at uh, wf or wwe's um financial picture over time you won't often find that the highest quality of products had the highest ratings quite necessarily because the highest ratings they were ever doing is in was probably like 99 and you know i mean i watched the whole attitude era back to back for uh you know over the course of one calendar year and i, I tell you what 1999 is largely dreadful um but the uh, and the probably the most money they're making is right now and well we don't really need to <laughs> say much about right now's product do we so i think you know people need to kind of understand that qual the quality of the product wasn't what was turning people off the fact was is that wrestling went through a conspicuous boom period like you know you might say between uh between the first wrestlemania and the seventh or eighth wrestlemania it was like a period where wrestling had mainstream appeal um that it's rarely had and that isn't something which is necessarily sustainable uh over time in some ways it's almost surprising that it was sustainable over the period of time that it was and the myth has always been that people stopped watching because the product got bad and there weren't any stars and that's not really true. I mean, there's all there's a whole host of things. I mean, WWE, WF and Vince had to go through the steroid scandal. That is going to be not very family friendly, turn some people off. Uh, they went through uh, a situation where um, where Pat Patterson uh, had to be kind of, you know, quietly let go for a bit because of a sex scandal. So there was all sorts of stuff going on beyond just the fact that we were coming to the end of a boom period. And people's tastes change and it took uh, a while for all wrestling companies to kind of get on board with that really um in, in, including I mean, wcw as well yeah people underestimate um the the impact that vince's issues outside of the wrestling world had um there's a a book, I can't remember what it's called. There's a, it's a WWE sponsored book, so you never know how far to trust it. But um, where it documents, it might be the encyclopedia or something, where it documents the new engineer. And, and uh, there's testimonials in there from Vince where, he, where they say, you know, that the staff at WWF HQ were having to bring in their own stationery because they had that little money, you know, and that there were entire floors of WWHQ that were just not used. Um, this was a, a company because of just endless legal battles that he had going on as a result, as you say, from all these scandals that were happening. Um, but actually, you know, there's a there's also a habit with WWE in particular, and this is conditioned into people, I think, uh, by WWE, um, that scale matters and that the bigger it is, the better it is. And that there's something embarrassing about not being able to fill out, you know, there's something wrong if we can't fill out an 80,000 seat stadium for shows like WrestleMania every year. Somehow that's, that's not WrestleMania. One of the great things about new gen, one of the things that benefits from most of all that we always bang on about on this show, uh, about having issues with in today's product is reduced scale. 
you know, they the 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 shows are more intimate because they happen in smaller smaller arenas, including the WrestleManias. The focus is instead on robust creative, on selling the shows through story, on selling the shows through quality wrestling. Uh, and uh, you know, you're talking about. I mean, this is another reason why you asked me at the start of the show what appeals to me. This is this is another thing. The everything about the production design during New Gen. I love, you know, I love the fact that Raw is one hour long every week. And I love the format that Raw takes throughout the period as well. I love the format that In Your House pay-per-views take. And I love the fact, I mean, the first In Your House isn't even two hours long. You know, it's less than two hours, but it's a, a, a fun show. Um, and the same could be said for most In Your House pay-per-views. You and I have both revisited them at length in our own in our own uh, time during our stints here at LOP. Uh, and... Uh, they always deliver at least, and usually most of them, in actual fact, deliver at least one all-time classic uh, on average. I think that probably averages out, quite frankly. That's that's an incredible batting average for a for a pay-per-view franchise. Uh, and, you know, where it's not delivering classics, where it's a little bit um, uh, uh, weaker, it's still fun. You know, it's still decent wrestling. It's still good wrestling. And when you're dialed into the storylines, which is why watching the Raws uh, really does help, when you're dialed into the storylines and you watch these pay-per-view matches in context, I can't tell you, when I, got, when I went back, first started the research for my book, and I was watching all of the Raws in 93 at the very beginning, and I was watching the build up to SummerSlam 1993, which is an example of a pay-per-view that people write off immediately for various reasons, one of which, of course, being the whole Lex Luger loses by, by count-out or whatever in his sudden push and the Lex Express, all this business. Watch it in context. Watch the Raws leading up to that. I got it got to the point where I was like on the last Raw before SummerSlam 93, and I was so excited to sit and watch SummerSlam 93. It was like it was 1993 itself because the storytelling was so on point. And then when I revisited SummerSlam more recently for SEID this last summer, I loved the hell out of that show. I think that show is an absolutely sparkling example of a pay-per-view. Um, and the funny thing is, and people, you know, people snort in derision when I say this, um, but I, I have compared the Lex Express angle as a, a to the Yes movement years later because the basic fundamental concept is pretty much the same thing, you know, which is you have this uh, this uh, babyface hero that fans love, and you should be under no uh, mistake, by the way. Even though Lex Luger didn't become Hulk Hogan, he was very, 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 very popular. Uh, with the WWF fan base in 1993. Uh, that much is obvious if you just watch the shows and, and VTs and stuff. But they had this whole idea of this hot baby face that people love, that people want to see get a title shot, have to use support from the people to basically insert himself into a title match through vocal support in contravention to what the ruling authorities may have wanted. Now, granted, in 1993, it's entirely fictional. There's no blending with reality like there would be in 2014, but the basic concept is exactly the same. And especially when you add in the Lex Express, you know, are you telling me that if that whole angle took place in 2014, it wouldn't be hashtag Lex Express or hashtag, you know, I think there's a clear, the idea of it, of Lex going across the United States to drum up support to get the people to get him a title shot is pretty much exactly what happened in 2014 with Daniel Bryan and social media, you know, and that's just a, one example of many where you get these kind of very curious uh, precognitive ideas during the new generation era that would, would be to some degree, 
uh, rolled out many years later in a more robust and, and, and arguably more effective uh, form that demonstrates that new gen isn't a lame duck creatively either. In fact, some of the best creative they've ever put together in terms of how tightly knit it is and in terms of how well executed the, the key concept of the story is, is, is executed. Some of that is all in the new generation era. And I think people underestimate how much better Vince is when he has his back against a wall. Yes. When he has to prove something. And obviously yeah. they had a small writing staff. But it was very coherent. You know, um, I guess the writing room got a bit bigger towards the end of the era. But certainly at the beginning, it's essentially, you know, like Vince. It's like Vince, Pritchard, you know, Briscoe maybe. Like Pat Patterson kind of helping with the sort of, uh, you know, like with the the way in which the stuff was executed. But it was a very kind of tight knit group of people that were putting the shows together, putting the angles together and so on and so forth. And, you know, you look at this idea today of all these writers rooms and so on and so forth, all these things that people don't like. Well, the new gen had none of that because they couldn't afford it. Um, and they had to they had to just have people that knew what they were doing. And, and of course, they they weren't writing hours and hours on tv a week they were they were writing one hour of tv a week more or less um and the 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 quality obviously picks up from that and you know there are there are misfires like there are with any era um and there are poor booking decisions like there are with any era i mean i think one of the interesting things about the bret hart arc is that all the stuff that he says in 1997 uh, about (laughs) you know that blurring the line stuff well, it is true because if if Bret Hart were, you know, around today, you know, he would be holding the belt for long periods of time. But you know, it's like a defining title reign for Bret Hart. Like you'd be hard pushed to say which one it was. Yeah. Because he never really got that signature run. Like he was obviously the top guy of the era, but you know, like you say, there's almost a year where Diesel's the champion. Uh, there's um, you know, where Sean's the uh, yeah six months or so where Sean is the champion um, and yeah it's interesting and, and funnily enough the same thing it really recurs with with Austin and with The Rock you know they never had yeah. that kind of you know Cena's got his year long run Hogan's got what a three year run at one point I think um, like it, it but it's it's interesting that, that Brett and Sean, you know, didn't get a, a kind of defining time with the belt in that way. And, and, and that's a, a, an interesting thing to look at as well, is that they did sometimes take a chance on someone like a Diesel just to see if they could recreate a bit of what they did in rock and wrestling. And, you know, looking back on it, obviously, Kevin Nash was so much better after the title run because he's got the experience. But there's no doubt there's bits of that title run which, you know, are, are, are not so, are not so good. I mean, including the infamous, you know, King Mabel match, of course, which is probably the reason why people look down on 1995. It's really just that one match. Well, quite, it, yeah, mean, absolutely. That's people's perception is that you know, uh, <laughs> Diesel, uh, Diesel had a match against King Mabel, which is you know, dreadful. Uh, but that's that's not the whole of 1995. That's one main event of one pay-per-view. Absolutely. And, and I mean, in, in terms of 
well, first of all, in terms of Diesel, I mean, if if you watch, like you say, his stuff after his title reign ends, like between Survivor Series '95 and then when he leaves WWF, like his work in that in that run is just outstandingly good. Uh, and you know, by the beginning of '96, he's flipping the bird to the Undertaker, and you know, you could easily see he would have gotten back to the mountaintop easily at some stage had he have stayed with WWF, and it would have probably have been the way things were going—a real driving force behind Attitude happening um, anyway. Uh, and I think, I think <clears throat> for that to happen at the same time. Uh, or, or shortly after Brett begins this arc of becoming more aggressive and pushing the envelope uh, in terms of the violence in the ring a little bit more. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think that kind of it, it started a, a, an infectiousness through the roster when everyone decided that they wanted to start being a bit edgier and a bit cooler. And that snowballs over you know the next couple of years until you arrive at Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, and, the funny thing is, you can if you watch Shawn Michaels' babyface run, it kind of happened at the completely wrong moment for him, because not not just because of the personal issues that are well documented, but because it, it you know they were getting him to play the smiley white meat babyface right at the time when everyone was trying to get edgier and cooler, uh, and you can almost feel in his work, uh, you know, in his body language every time he's in the ring, in his body language and his actual language every time he's on a microphone from the way he changes his look when he comes back from a layoff in the summer of 95, you can feel him straining against the leash they've put around him now that they've put him in this, you know, this top smiley babyface role. You can feel him wanting to, to be something different. Uh, and I think that's probably in part that conflict between what he clearly wants to be and what the creative seems to be um, siloing him into is is um, a, one of the reasons why perhaps his title run uh, from a ratings perspective perhaps didn't necessarily take off. But that's you know that's another conversation for another time. I mean, you mentioned that when people think '95, they think of the worst of '95, uh, and it very much is the worst by some distance. One of the things I'm excited to talk about when we do this is WrestleMania 11, which you and I are both big fans of. Uh, which is a, a key example of a pay-per-view that that gets uh, ludicrously uh, misrepresented misrepresented in the popular wrestling discourse because it's got a trilogy of really great title matches on it and um, a, a main event, which again, you know, curiously precognitive. You want to talk about something like Big Show and Floyd Mayweather? Uh, they were doing Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam in, in the headlining slot at WrestleMania 11, and it's a Actually, a pretty damn good showing from Lawrence Taylor as well. It's one of the better celebrity matches you're going to find uh, in in WWF's history. Um, and but then either side of that as well, you have all these matches. And I know I keep banging on about this. You have all these matches dotted around on the TVs. You have Luger and Tonka in a cage match that pays off their their long running feud since SummerSlam of '94. Uh, you have a women's championship match between Lundra Blaze and Bulldokano. It might be a couple of weeks, uh, or even the, the the show after WrestleMania 11. You have a no disqualifications match between Bret and Owen on the Go Home Show before WrestleMania 11, which is the only match on that entire Raw, uh, which is something that I can't remember them ever having done before or since. Um, and you know, any one of these could have been a, a strong addition to that card as well, you know, because they are all, all of such a quality that if they'd have happened on the WrestleMania card, they would be talked about animatedly and with excitement today, especially the women's matches. And this is going to be important through 95 as well as we go through is, uh, you know, a, a, 
I think a lot of them happen on TV, sadly. So we might miss most of them if we just cover pay-per-views. Uh, but the, you want to talk about the women's revolution. Well, you know, go back and check out Alundra Blazer's work in the mid-1990s, because even though some of it's not great, a lot of it really is phenomenal. And the match that I referenced there that happens on a Raw shortly after WrestleMania 11 could easily stand up against some of the best women's matches we've seen since 2014, and that's 1995. But nobody ever talks about that. You know, the, the, even the defining narrative of women's wrestling is you have, you know, the, the stuff in the 80s with Sherry, then you have divas in attitude, and then you have the need to change it. And that entire span of, of Alundra Blazer's work, and I was so happy to see her getting some uh, some references, you know, when they were doing the Royal Rumble a couple for the first time a couple of years back, and when she got inducted in the Hall of Fame and all that stuff. But her legacy is largely defined by taking the Women's Championship, throwing it in a, in a trash can on WCW TV. And the great irony of that is that her doing that actually has trashed an entire generation of women's wrestling in WWF, which happened during the 1990s and more often and delivered more than one outstanding match between the two of them, uh, between uh, between the two of them being Alundra Blaze and Bulldogano. Well, there's two things that, that I mean, just as a, a side comment, as as you've raised it, sure. two, two things that, that WWF, WWE have always had lukewarm relationship with cruiserweight wrestling and women's wrestling. Mm. And, um, you know, you can see, in like uh that sort of 92 93 94 period where women's wrestling got taken very seriously in wwf and then that kind of bizarre period where there just wasn't any women's wrestling and then you get all the sable and horrible attitude era stuff um and then with the cruisers right you think about like 97 when the light heavyweight championship got introduced and taka mishinoku was doing amazing things in the ring and then you have to wait all the way until, well, the Cruiserweight Classic to, uh, to find it again, oh, really. Oh, I guess there's that brief period on SmackDown, mm. isn't there, in, in sort of 2002, 2003. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, that, it's those, those two things that WF has always had a slightly bizarre relationship with. But I think it's also worth saying that the inverted commas sexiness of women on wrestling TV, well... Sonny yeah, exactly. comes in during uh, the generation as the manager of the Bodies Honours and, um, of course, would go on to be the original diva. You know, I'm, I'm not totally sure if they ever used the word for her while she was kind of active, but, you know, that's how they, they pitched her Hall of Fame induction, you know, the original diva. And, you know, she was just uh, <laughs> an incredibly magnetic presence on tv and it's nothing to do with whether she you know whatever magazine she posed in or anything just on tv she was a magnetic presence she had incredible charisma and you know was somebody that uh was very young when they got that opportunity and obviously made a lot of mistakes um with that kind of with that fame and fortune but uh nevertheless is somebody who is incredibly enjoyable to uh, to see in those segments particularly with the body donors early on well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Sonny, I'm not sure how prominent she is in 95, but certainly in 96, uh, like for, for, well, basically for the span of a year, Sonny is essentially uh, the tag team division in a lot of ways. Uh, and what I mean by that is that she hops from, it would be 96, not 95, which is dominated largely by Yoko and Owen. And my God, I can't wait to talk about Yoko and Owen as a, as a tag team when we do this. But um, 
uh, Sunny is, I think, through 96, basically, you know, she manages the body donors, then she portrays them and manages the Godwins, then she portrays them and manages the smoking guns. And for like a year, she she is the driving force behind most of the drama in the tag team division, which, you know, they didn't have a lot of tag team attractions at the time. So you put Sunny with them and you make Sunny the attraction in a lot of ways and you make her the, the center of the storyline intrigue and suddenly the tag team wrestling is interesting. Uh, and uh, that... Even with Sunny, you can read into the way that her character jumps from one team to another, the, the decisions that inform that, the manner in which she then begins the process of basically breaking up the smoking guns who were the top team for the entire era. Um, you know, all of that is a character arc in itself. And that's something else that's marvelous about New Gen. We've talked about it um, already a number of times, but even secondary, even tertiary characters sometimes have these these really great character arcs. I mean, Ted DiBiase is a manager pretty much the entire era. He's got a great character arc that I'm going to be exploring in the book that I'm writing uh, when that comes out. You know, 123 Kid, for example, who is a representation of, you know, I guess some of the most foremost cruiserweight wrestling in, in WWE's history, at least, um, you know, has a wonderful character arc all of his own that starts with that upset victory over Razor Ramon, which in itself by the way, is built up to over weeks. Like there's, He does like three appearances under different names and they consciously recognize it's the same kid before he beats Razor Ramon. So, uh, you know, even the even that one moment that gets represented as a shock moment was built up to. Um, and then his relationship with Razor Ramon defines his character for the rest of the era as well. Um, and, uh, you know, that's 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 what's great about it. That's another reason I love it so much is it feels like a product with such poise and such purpose. Uh, and again, it's, I think it's a result again of that smaller scale. Everything's operating on a smaller level, but I'll also say this as much as we take the mick out of it. And as much as it is a source of inadvertent humor, like relentlessly, there's something to be said for Vince McMahon's commentary. And I know that this is going to be a, a pretty kind of unpopular opinion to maybe, or unfashionable at the very least to espouse, uh, but Vince's commentary in its own way is fantastic because he's always on message. No one knows the story that, that wants to be told better than the guy who's you know in charge of it, which is Vince. So he knows exactly how to describe what's happening. Uh, he's complimented very well by his by his color announcers, whether that's you know Jerry Lawler or sometimes in the in the latter stages of the era Jim Ross. Uh, and you throughout the entire era, whether it's TV matches, segments, interviews pay-per-view matches, pay-per-view main events, you you always are completely aware of exactly what is happening and what it means because of the fact that you have someone on commentary who is clearly relaying the meaning of the story to you rather than bickering with people on either side of him, everyone presenting alternative views on the same thing so that as a viewer, you're left having absolutely no idea what anything means because you aren't being presented with a coherent narrative from the chorus uh, of the TV show. Uh, and that's something that Eugen is able to rise above because it's a, a single voice with a, a single idea about what's happening. And so, you know, exactly what the story is. And, you know, we talk a lot about the issues with commentary these days. We talk a lot about, you know, how they how they misinterpret characters and stuff. But I think one of the central issues we don't talk enough about with it is the fact that you'll have Michael Cole presenting what a match as one thing while Corey Graves is presenting it as something else, while the other color announcer is disagreeing with them both and saying, I think it means this. And so no one's actually saying anything. And, and what you're watching you, you is completely impenetrable to you. And Vince, you know, he also had that great trick of reacting to stuff as if it was real, which is very, yes. which is very underrated. Like he would, 
I, I'm thinking particularly, I mean, this, this is like not in the period we're covering, but, but I'm thinking particularly of the, uh, the gold dust Roddy Piper, uh, backlot <laughs> brawl in which he plays it completely straight. <laughs> like as if you know he really is like you know a, a sports announcer that's got no clue what on earth is going on with this car chase and um and, just, and, maybe a little bit close to the truth with that one it's just like yeah but just but he totally dead <laughs> he totally deadpans it uh he does and you know often when he's uh color commentators is something completely outrageous he goes well okay back to the action <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just this sort of like the way that like a real sports announcer would if if their co-commentators to, to see like they've got to quickly cover up uh so there's a there's a charm to it and i think the word charm is important whenever you talk about the new generation because it does have a charm to it which gets lost subsequently somewhere along the way i mean you could you could put a pin anywhere between 2005 and 2010 as to where the, where the innocence is lost, I guess. But um, there is a sort of a sheen of, of, of charm about it, which is important. Like, even if you take, like, the 95 Rumble match, you know, and, and people's criticism of it being too short, it has an awful lot of charm, as well as having those two great performances by uh, by Bulldog and Michaels. It's It's, it's actually just an incredibly fun match which is probably truer to the spirit of the royal rumble than most royal rumbles are actually um yeah i i mean i i'm so happy that we've decided to do 95 and that we start with with the rumble uh which is a pay-per-view i adore it's one of my favorite pay-per-views for reasons well obviously you know i don't want to sort of preempt ground that we'll cover next week um but 95 Rumble is a is a key example of how best to experience New Gen. If you go back and you want to experience New Gen or, or take another look at it or try and reappraise it or see if you were always right about the way you feel about it, whichever side of the argument you may fall on, the best way to do it is to is is with context. And and Royal Rumble, the Royal Rumble match of 95 is a, is a prime example because if you watch it in isolation, yeah, it comes off as a bit odd. You know, it's a bit of an oddity and I can I can understand. I don't agree, but I can understand why some people would watch it in isolation and go, well, that's a bit disappointing. Uh, but when you watch in context, when you watch it as part of the rest of the show and especially when you watch it as part of the rest of the product, uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's it's a riotous amount of fun. And the fact that it is so short plays heavily to its benefit. Um, and again, it's it's something that I've, I've I've got mentally noted as a talking point next week, so I don't want to cover it too much here. But I think that uh, the Royal Rumble '95 pay-per-view has a really cool theme at the heart of it that's probably unintentional, but I don't really care whether it's intentional or otherwise, uh, and that really complements the the fact that the Royal Rumble is so short and and makes uh, makes Rumble '95's greatest advantage. It's it's relatively short running time actually um and like you say the fact that it's so devoid of a lot of the kind of the contrivances that we now see uh you know the most intolerable of which is what way is kofi kingston going to avoid elimination this year wink wink nudge nudge um the fact that it's free of a lot of that i think is it makes it a really refreshing watch as well and i think again you can expand that out to new gen there's there's not a lot in the way of uh, wrestling contrivances uh, that you see, you know, you're not getting contract signings every week. Uh, you're not getting out of control brawls every week. 
Uh, you'll get them here and there. One of the most electrifying is Randy Savage and Crushers at the end of '93. Um, but but they're they're deployed uh, with large amounts of time between them, and and so when you do see them, they're electrifying, and they're always deployed at exactly the right point in a narrative, uh, and. Uh, everything just feels so natural. There's a real sense of cause and effect, a real sense of consequence that results from the tight writing for the character development, uh, which I can't, you know, I can't extol enough. Um, you know, everything that happens to Bret Hart, for example, uh, you you just immediately accept because it just makes sense that he'd react that way. And, and the fact that that spreads throughout the entire roster is a demonstration of how every prominent character there is is a three-dimensional fully formed character that you can easily envision in you know in 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 thought experiments and go he reacts that way um and uh you know and so when you get curiosities like people will 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 uh, snort when they hear that you know the the background to the bret hart lafitte jean-pierre lafitte match was that lafitte stole his jacket you know well it, it actually all right when you when you boil it down to a high concept like that it does sound a bit ridiculous, but then the way that that's presented on TV is, is, is great because Brett says this jacket was a gift from my mom for mother's day. You know, I'm dedicating this to her that someone stole it is a, is a black mark against my honor as a son. And, and, and I can't allow that to be done with impunity. And there's a, to create emotional connections to very simple ideas, I think is, is a real lost art in wrestling in general. Uh, not just in WWE, but in general from what I've been seeing in recent weeks. Um, and I would much rather take, you know, a kind of humble product like that that makes the most out of little uh, than I would take anything that I'm seeing these days. And I think, you know, the, uh, the you know, let's not forget the innovation of the era, particularly this year, is that we, we, we get in your house. And the, the, the first five yes. in your house shows are absolutely tremendous and, and really kind of form a, a backbone of non-Big Four pay-per-views that have existed ever since. Um, and, you know, w- when you say that a show like, you know, Backlash 2016 is in your house-esque, you know, that's, that's, that's the ultimate compliment because those shows were always intended as, you know, not to be these, these kind of juggernaut, huge sprawling shows, but to be, you know, um, a, a narrative waypoint. Uh, and that's how they were used. And, you know, those brilliantly unique names that each in your house show had, <laughs> you know, dependent on what was going on at the time. That's what I really liked about the original takeovers. And as soon as they started naming them after cities, uh, it sounds sounds really pretentious, but I kind of lost interest. No, I don't think it sounds pretentious. I think there's a there's a, there's a I think there's a reason behind that, and I think part of it is that it reflects a sense of laziness that they can't be asked anymore. We'll just name it after the city because it's easy. Um, but I think you know, and it, and I think it extends to not just gimmick pay per views, which are the worst. Uh, but having the same pay-per-view in the same slot in the same month every year as well, I would extend it to this as well. You lose a sense of personality and a sense of individuality, and that's what those in your houses carry. Um, you, you know, it's charm again, isn't it? You know, you know that when you watch 
in your house mind games feels like it's got a life of its own in large part because it's the only show called in your house mind games same with final four or same with the great white north same with uh you know it's time or beware of dog or any of them uh you know they feel utterly unique to to the point in time they were they're named after you know the characters in the main event or the gimmick or or you know the the kind of the thrust of the narrative or a catchphrase or whatever uh, and the fact that they only ever happened once there's only one show in the history of all of wwf you know called mind games uh and that that makes it that little bit extra special and it makes it unique and that's then also i think further complemented by uh, and the same, by the way, as you were saying, with TakeOver Rival, TakeOver, uh, I can't remember what they're all called now, Revolution, TakeOver Art Evolution, oh, good one. Um, you know, again, they're the only shows called that, so they feel a bit more special. But um, in the case of New Gen, and actually, you know what? Same with those early TakeOvers as well, because, of course, you know, NXT, before it became the kind of postmodern nightmare it is now, actually, a lot of that product reflects a lot of what's great about the new gen products i've always said if you've enjoyed the one hour nxt format you'll enjoy raw during new gen um but uh you know what i was going to say was with the in your house pay-per-views what complements then that sense of individuality is the sense of intimacy as well because again i have mentioned it a few times the smaller scale you know and and the the fact they were happening in smaller arenas they were shorter shows the crowd feel a lot closer to the ring than they do now you don't have this great chasm of space between the ring and the audience it's not sanitized you know one of the things that i love about new gen it feel it sounds like such a ludicrously sort of pedantic thing to say is the fact that you had steel railings exposed. You know, they didn't have the cover on the steel railings. There's something about that that I really like. You know, it just feels a little bit more um, uh, intimate. Like I say, you know, it feels a bit more low budget, a bit grittier, a bit earthier, a bit more um, uh, uh, sinewy. You know, there's just something about it that I really like and something about the the less dressy way that these shows were put on um, that I think... I'd, I mean, I'd love to go back to that. You know, I'd, I'd love to see it. I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, but there's, the, you know, it's, I think atmosphere is the thing. It creates a sense of atmosphere and, and it transports you into the arena that you're watching the show in. And I think that that's a, uh, an aspect of, of, a, of a good pay-per-view that perhaps we don't talk about, is, is that ability to transport you as if you feel like you're there. Oh, the intimacy of the In Your House set, you know, it, it did lend itself to that. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's actually one of the things I think people have remembered fondly about the era is that that logo and, um, you know, and that kind of house at the end of the set. You know, you see a lot of wrestlers kind of, you know, there's been a few T-shirts that have kind of used. It. I mean, I think about like, you know, the Cesaro uh, King of Swing T-shirt that was like the King of the Ring logo. Um, and there was I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody did like an in your house style t-shirt it might have been new day i can't remember but somebody kind of used that sort of like imagery and it is something i think people have remembered fondly um and you know by the time of course sorry go on. Uh, yeah by the time you know as to drop that branding it was kind of probably time for it to go but there was certainly something about uniqueness of those you know of those names and of course the original originally the attitude era names like your no mercies and your unforgivens you know when they were first brought up it was the first time they've been used yeah and it was only a, a sort of decision i guess around 99 or 2000 to begin reusing them um yeah absolutely but it, i mean even with even then 
I can kind of forgive attitude for it because at least the set designs on those pay-per-views were, were always different. Um, you know, they unforgiving in 98 has a different set design to unforgiving in 99, for example, that has a different set design to every other pay-per-view that year. Um, now we're in this situation where it's the same names for the same pay-per-views in the same months using the same sets as the same TV shows. So it just feels lifeless and limp. Um, and, you know, I mean, in an ideal world, we could get pay-per-views with individual names defined by storyline or characters, uh, you know, with, with unique set design that just exudes creativity and exudes a sense of life and a sense of, of energy that, that, that they haven't had in years. And, you know, you, you, look at the, you look at the characters today and so many of them could so easily, you know, In Your House, Burn It Down writes itself as a name, you know, or, or the mm. Firefly Funhouse is a great precept to base something on, you know, as, for, for a, to base a whole pay-per-view around like they did with Rock Bottom or with D-Generation X, um, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it's a shame. They've kind of flirted with it is the frustrating thing. So it's clearly within their grasp. You know, we've talked about it before, haven't we? These kind of intermittent network specials that'll happen like beast in the East, um, or, or the shields farewell was obviously the more recent one. Um, and they recently did one in, in, in a music city somewhere. I can't remember what it was called now. Um, didn't they earlier this year? Uh, and they're only one hour long, you know, maybe expand them out to 90 minutes. But uh, those kind of network specials are a lot of fun um, because they feel freer. They feel uh, individual. Uh, again, there's only ever one event that's happened called Beast in the East. And, and, it, and I actually really like Beast in the East for that. You know, it's got a weird tag team main event between John Cena and... <laughs> and Kane against Wade Barrett and someone else, I think, but it's got a great match between Jericho and Neville on there and stuff. And it's got Finn Balor winning the NXT championship. It, it really isn't in your house show by any other name. And it's a shame that they can't, you know, they can't do that a bit more frequently and maybe move towards that as a model and drop pay-per-views altogether, uh, at least 12 pay-per-views a year altogether, go back to big four pay-per-views and use network specials where narratives demand it here and there instead. But, you know, it's 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 a lesson to learn from an era that, as I said at the top of this show, has been expunged entirely from their history and reduced to simple sound bites and throwaway cliches that don't actually represent the reality of what New Gen was. And what you see as a result is the cost that comes with refusing and unconsciously refusing to learn from history and present history responsibly. Um, in that you lose its lessons, you lose the ability to learn from it, and you, you lose the values that it's able to instill, um, and 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 leads you leads leaves you ill informed for the future, ill prepared for the future. Well, this is the thing. I think there's a sustainability about the new generation which allowed attitude to flourish, and 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 what you worry about, what you worry about coming out of. Um, the reality era is there's not a sustainability factor it's like it's this this weird thing where you've come out of a you know previously when they come out of attitude they they had uh some ideas for what they could do with these mid carders from attitude that that were going to be the next lot of people that stepped up and and if you think look at that kind of whatever you want to call it brand extension era ruthless aggression era it, like it followed the same patterns the new gen in some ways it took the mid carders from the previous era and made them the, and made them the transitional stars before your Cena's and your batistas took over and that goes like mirrors your rocks and your austins and your foley's 
uh, and so on. So that's that's been WWF WWE's pattern over the years. But it's like we've come out of reality, and they've kind of they've kind of eventually gone all in with Seth Rollins, but not without some challenges. They went all in with Roman Reigns, but ducked out of it when it was most important. <laughs> um, still fucking baffles me that. Does. Uh, you know, Bray Wyatt has has you know like if you look at how consistently Mick Foley was used in the Mankind gimmick during the New Generation compared to how Bray Wyatt's been used, you know that's that's night and day. Braun Strowman, who should be your cane, is just absolutely nowhere. Um. You know, like Wyatt should be your Undertaker, Strowman should be your Kane, but they've kind of not allowed those wrestlers that kind of development and consistent character growth that would allow them to fit those roles. And that's why WWE is in an existential crisis right now, because their pattern, which has always worked, is, you know, you build your next sort of, layer of stars and and attractions in the previous era and then you kind of after that consistent prep time you then put them those guys on top and the cycle starts again and i guess starting with that glass ceiling generation of miz and ziggler and so on they were prevented from having the opportunity for so long that it ends up being rollins and ambrose and reigns and so on that that benefited and um and, and now it's it's kind of it's messed up the whole kind of cycle in a way and you know when you look at new gen the opportunities that austin uh and rocky Maivia, as he is at the time and um you know various other people billy gunn who would become like a big part of the early attitude landscape triple h you know that's that's what they got from new gen and that is another reason why new gen is so important because it gave opportunities for those mid-card guys to become the new Bret Hart's and Shawn Michaels when those two, for very, very different reasons, moved on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I think what broke the cycle, um, as I've said on the show in the distant past, was when it got to 2002 and The Rock left uh, pretty much for good. And then it got to 2004 and then Brock Lesnar, who was the guy they, they'd banked on, left. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden, John Cena's... Uh, already WWE champion, Randy Orton's already world champion by the time you get to 2005, which is probably three years too soon for them to, uh, you know, to be holding those championships. They probably shouldn't really have been getting to that point till maybe 2008-ish when they were sort of hitting their prime. Uh, and then, and then everyone just got paranoid. WWE seemed to get paranoid about the idea of of banking on anybody else at the expense of these guys that they knew were loyal and they could rely on and that were built in-house and that were thoroughbred WWE guys that weren't going to bugger off to Hollywood or bugger off to, you know, to uh, to other sporting enterprises or anything. Uh, and then by the time you do get to The Shield and stuff and Bray Wyatt, they almost, but maybe not so much in the case of The Shield, but arguably with Bray Wyatt and stuff, they, they rush into it with Adam Rusev, you know, and then they don't commit to them after the fact. Uh, and then, like you say, you get, I mean, the fact that we got to 2018 and the moment comes to bank on Roman and they don't do it causes a knock on effect. That means when the moment, because really, let's be honest, what they did with Seth this year, they should have done at SummerSlam last year when he was absolutely searing red hot 
you know, most popular performer in the company by a mile. Uh, heading into SummerSlam, you know, he'd had a hell of a run as Intercontinental Champion for a few months. He had never been hotter in his career. That was when they should have pulled the trigger and had him beat Brock. But instead, they go back to Roman because they hadn't done the Roman thing at WrestleMania. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then they, it turns out they're not getting rid of Brock after that. And then by the time they get around to do it with Seth, people are kind of called off a little bit because now Becky Lynch is ascendant. Um, and you know, anyway, so the story goes on and on. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. New gen, uh, uh, is able to transition into attitude because that cycle is very much there. Uh, and, uh, and what a transition as well. Uh, the hybrid between late new gen and early attitude is the best creative the company has ever put out, but you don't get there without going through 1995 first, which is why it's so important for us to go back to 1995, champion it a little bit, try and get people to think again about it, and make them realize that it isn't all about King Mabel. I entirely agree uh, with with that. And, you know, the thing is, is, it's interesting. I mean, I think a good starting point for next week might be that 1994 is very fondly remembered ironically mostly for two matches <laughs> you know it's like it's almost the opposite effect everyone remembers 94 yeah. fondly because you've got brett v owen uh, and sean v razor uh whereas people don't remember 1995 fondly because you've got diesel v king mabel um <laughs> it's it's like this is this, this this strange thing i mean i don't know if in future you know you're gonna have a similar thing where people uh you know let's say people uh won't uh countenance 2012 because it's got john cena uh versus uh johnny ace but they'll uh but they'll love 2013 because it's got brock lesnar v cm punk or something like that you know what i mean um yeah uh anyway uh, so yeah it's a good a good place for us to end this week i think so the new generation we will always uh beat the drum for uh, i don't know how many uh younger listeners we have actually um with no idea of what our demographics really are but but if you if you did uh, <laughs> all three people who listen to yeah, the show still. uh but if you are of, of a generation of people you know like like imp for example with fans imp listens to us like you know who who grew up way after uh new gen and even you know really grew up after attitude which is a scary thought then and you've not seen any of this stuff there's a lot there that you'd enjoy um, and it's going to be a fun watch along project for sure. And if you were there and you got all those thoughts that we're talking nonsense and it was in, in your opinion, all gimmicks and um, like boring stuff, then uh, watch along and see if you change your mind and see if we can change your mind about the whole thing. So we're excited. Uh, it's going to be nothing else. It gives us an excuse to watch uh, a, Hey, for you and some and some roars every week, which is always good. It's nice to watch the network with a purpose because otherwise, I just end up scrolling through back catalogue and not deciding on what I want to watch. <laughs> so these projects them, so yeah. always work well for me, um, for that reason. So uh, yeah, we're going to be here next week to talk you through that. So until then, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you soon. Bye. <laughs>